Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, everyone. I love starting my week off with you every single week. I know you hear that every week also if you're an avid listener, but I truly mean it. Putting this podcast together means the world to me, and I'm always so thrilled to connect with you. And I'd love to hear from you. So if you have any recommendations on future topics or would like to be a guest on our show or even share your story on our blog and newsletter, please reach out. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. You can also follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter, SBC underscore ORG, and also on Instagram, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word. In today's episode, I speak with Gloria. Gloria is diagnosed with lobular breast cancer. She's originally from Trinidad and currently resides in Canada. As a Reiki master, Gloria believes in the power of healing, not just through the body's own power, but through the energy that radiates around us. Through deep reflection and introspection, Gloria has been able to confront trauma and now finds herself being able to live her best and fullest life. We talk about the power of therapeutic touch, the hand-heart connection, and Gloria's ultimate decision to no longer take letrozole, an aromatase inhibitor. Here in North America, we very much focus on the physical, the allopathic method of healing, which is surgery, radiation, chemo, versus looking at the whole person emotionally, mentally, spiritually, what's going on with us. In this poetically beautiful podcast, welcome to the conversation. opportunity to share information, knowledge, experiences, and really give voice to all of the types of breast cancer that are out there, various stages, various subcategories. And when I was reading your story, I noticed that you have lobular breast cancer, and that is an area that I would love to dive into. Oh, for sure. My my pleasure. I'm really happy I re- did that and reached out, and here we are today. So we're looking forward to it. <laughs> Your story really begins many years before your actual diagnosis. Your body was trying to tell you something. Absolutely. And and which is very interesting. Um, and even though I have followed up and was the one to actually identify the so-called pinhead of a lump, and that's the thing with lobular uh, breast cancer, is that it tends to show smaller than it really is. And, and so even though I did have an ultrasound on it in December 2018, it showed fine. My mammogram December, uh, July 2019 showed nothing. Um, but lobular cancer, breast cancer is like that. It does not present itself. Ultrasounds don't tend to pick it up because of the where it forms because it's coming from the lobes of the breast, which is the milk producing glands versus ductal, which is the glands, which is really the ducts that take the breast milk from the lobes to the nipple. Right. Okay. Yeah. So only 10%, as you said, Laura, I think it's just about 10% that experiences lobular breast cancer. And it also seems based on the research that I've done that it's mostly older women. And I think that is because of having gone through menopause 
it tends to be um, in a lot of cases uh, estrogen um, positive. And, and I think that has to do with things like diet and exercise and and stress and everything all coming together um, in our body, uh, you know, to make that ideal soup, which it sounds like what occurs um, for any kind of cancer to occur, right? Exactly. That seems to be a theme I hear time and time again. And I don't know if it's just in North America where we are just workaholics and we like to take on so much. We're overachievers, we're moms, we have careers, we're taking on co-curricular, extracurricular volunteer opportunities, and we really fill our plate. I hear time and time again, myself included, that I don't realize how stressed out I was until cancer forced me to stop and literally cancel everything that I had going on for the next couple of months. Exactly, exactly. And and it's so well said because it causes up it causes all of us with such a diagnosis to really just stop and and take uh you know an inventory of our whole life wheel and look at all the responsibilities that we carry in that life wheel. And and so you know for me it's like so many um, various experiences. And, and I think one of the beautiful thing about this uh, healing journey through Wellspring is really allowing us to look at ourselves, take the time as we go into meditation to really ask ourselves the big question, even just to record things like, your lifeline and the various losses, whether that is uh, the loss of a loved one through debt or the loss of a relationship through marriage or divorce, as the case may be, loss of jobs. And when you look at all those things, you realize, well, and then you add the complexity of the dynamic of just living. Yeah. Right? Produces an added... Uh, stress, and I don't think we understand how stress affects us. We don't. So, so, so the way I look at it now is, I have converted my whole life to say I now occupy one to ten on my to do list. Yes, eating healthy is is a change. Exercising daily, just going for walks in nature and breathing the fresh air, and being hugged by the forest. You know, oh, I love it's, that. It, yeah, it's so wonderful to. Um, you know, to walk alongside a stream and to just take the moment to observe, you know, the various animal life that presents themselves to communicate with us, right? So some of my favorites, uh, you know, herons and and turtles and <laughs> and all sorts of wing birds. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I live in Boston, and you know, I'm in this, you know, condensed city urban life. And I love going up to, uh, we go to Northern New Hampshire, we go to Maine, Vermont, to be in nature by the ocean, by the water, the streams, the mountains. And to me, that is like rejuvenating. It allows me and gives me the energy then on weekends to go and escape in nature and then come back into the city dwelling and, you know, go through the the day job and and the hustle and bustle, but it's so important to connect with earth, to connect with nature, and whatever that is, whether it's the water, the mountains, the fresh air, to 
to find that solitude and an experience. Absolutely. Because, you know, the thing for me is if someone had said to me just back in December 2020, like I would go walking by myself in nature on a daily basis, and I would say most probably not. And now I crave my daily walk by myself because I use it as a opportunity to commune with nature, but also to commune with myself. So I find like I love just walking and chanting in nature. So tell me a little bit about your life prior to your diagnosis. Well, you know, I have had, um, what can I say? Um, You know, spending 40 odd years in the corporate world, um, uh, mostly in IT, software, sales, some of the largest corporations you can think of, like IBM, Mm -hmm. uh, for instance. So very, you know, hectic, fast pace. And then I think just never really handling some of the losses that occurred in my life at an early age. So one that came up for me recently as I went through this course, actually, when I say recently, earlier this year, was the fact that I lost one of my very close brothers when I was only 15. Mm. And he was just, you know, four years older than me, but very close because I was in grade 11, grade 12, actually, at the time, uh, doing what we called, I'm originally from Trinidad in the Caribbean. We followed the, at that point in time, we followed the British uh, system of education. So, preparing for all levels and I was in the science stream and and my brother would be the one to explain me physics and add math and chemistry and unfortunately he was in a motorbike accident oh and passed on and I I don't think I ever understood what it meant to grieve because I think coming from Trinidad in, in the area that we lived, Um, first off in my high school, I really don't think my peers in high school even knew that I lost a brother because we came from different parts of the island. So I think other than maybe four or five girls from the village that I was born and grew up in um, attended that high school. Mm. Funny enough, it was run by Canadian missionaries. Wow, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, so which is so interesting, right? Um, but not being able to really grieve that and then lose my mom, I think she just barely stayed alive until I was 24. So nine years later, losing her, you pretty much have to wake up and and be an adult very quickly these things affect us in many many ways and until we have the opportunity to take the time I think to really look and see how did this affect me and have I grieved did I really you know go through that process of grieving it's so important to allow yourself that time and know that there's not really an end either I believe that grieving is a process. Now, I understand also that you enjoy spending a lot of time out in nature. We live in, not in the city, so we live in in the country. And they're lovely, lovely trails. So I was walking a day and saw this 
beautiful red cardinal. And, and I didn't know what I was feeling or why, but I remember learning somewhere along my path that a red cardinal is normally like a loved one just visiting. And, and I got this flash of my brother. I found myself just in total tears. These are the kind of experiences, I think, until we give ourselves the time and to really be honest with the way I look at it, Laura, is me, myself, and I, nobody else, <laughs> right? All three of us call it, you know, even if you think of it as the body, mind, spirit. Mm-hmm. Because I do believe there are things that affect us on the physical level that has an impact on the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual. I completely agree. Now, you've been involved in a lot of healing, personal healing, going through workshops, various modules. Can you tell me about the healing process for you and how you're doing? Not just with all of the losses you just described, but also with your breast cancer diagnosis. For me, as, as I go through my healing journey, there's one that really uh, sticks out for me, and that is, you know, the growing up, we always heard and it's somewhere in the back of my head that says blood is thicker than water. Mm. And and for me, that has not been my personal experience uh, with my family of origin, especially my siblings. It has now allowed me to sit with that and ask myself, what do I believe family to be? And, and, and to me, family could be anyone. It's all of humanity. That is one aha moment. The other is, what would my choice be if something should occur with any one of my siblings? I had to really sit with that for some time because you have to, in my case, I had to let go that um, disappointment, let go of the expectation, and, and really ask myself, who am I? Which is scary. It's scary sometimes to confront who you are and really look in the mirror and do some of that deep healing internally that will bubble up emotions that you might not be expecting to to have bubble up. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think every day, if we spend time with ourselves, just in the silence, in those moments, we learn more about ourselves and and then we can make conscious informed choices as to who do we want to be in that process. I look at myself and I say, wow, you know, I am loving, I'm kind, I'm compassionate. Um, I'm able to discern, you know, is something from the ego? Is it from source? Therefore I can make informed choices. And so my informed choice around this myth is to change that to reframe or redefine what family is to me. And then in addition to that, to say, what is the choice I'm going to make should some of my siblings have, you know, let's say maybe a health issue or something like that. And I've decided that this is who I am. So I'll respond the same way that I always did, but with boundaries. 
Have you had other aha moments as you're experiencing the journey of healing? Another aha moment for me in this process is one reframe in the thinking, but also um, choosing what are healthy boundaries for me. So, you know, case in point was 2007, I think it was, when my dad had a stroke. For me, I felt the connection, the um, decision to really disappeared at the airport in Trinidad. And so both my son and I went down to Trinidad to, I had just changed jobs and I had, I decided I had about a week to spend in Trinidad, but I needed to bring my dad back up to Canada. And, you know, we had to literally lift him on the airplane and, you know, 12 years Uh, that I had with him uh, after that, he was in the hospital here in Canada for like 46 days because his stroke was uh, affected his left side. He couldn't eat. He couldn't speak. He had no movement. The phenomenal healthcare team that was involved in his healing um, really made a difference. And of course his will, and his desire to live. And and so those are lessons for me that now I could recall and implement in my own healing. It's interesting that the last two years, as you read from my story, that, you know, we lost him uh, just after his 94th birthday. But that was another experience. He literally taught me conscious dying. So I had the opportunity to spend four days with him at our local hospice. In those four days, I could see the symbolism of everything from the choice of his golf shirts that the nurses choose to put on, to his last rites, to his communication, to learn in therapeutic touch, which was something I never even heard about until hospice, even though I was trained and I am trained in Reiki. So even as a Reiki master, I I was never exposed to therapeutic touch. The volunteer, she taught me what they call the hand-to-heart connection when someone is in the process of dying. Can you explain to me what therapeutic touch is and this relationship between hand and heart? Yeah, so so therapeutic touch actually was uh, developed by um, the head of nursing. I think it's New York State, Upper New York State. And it is evidence-based research. So a lot of the nursing schools actually teach therapeutic touch. And the way I would explain therapeutic touch is recognizing that we all energy. So I think once we uh, can get our heads around the fact that we're all energy, whether it's animate or inanimate, there are many levels to our energetic field. So there's the physical body, there's the emotional, there's the mental and the spiritual. 
some people are able to see or feel those feels. It's really about bringing with intention. So it's going into that heart space and holding that intention of opening an energetic portal for someone who is dealing with any kind of imbalance in the energy field to bring balance, order, and harmony back to their energy field. But it's up to the person (laughs) that is the recipient to then uh, take that opening or that portal and, and make that choice, right? So, so I think if it's something that I have learned through this whole process, you know, choosing, but choosing wisely and, and being empowered in your choice so that that internal guidance is very much present. Almost allowing yourself to be open up to the signs and energy that the universe is giving you. As you were mentioning, like with your experience walking and seeing the red cardinal and then you know it's easy to be looking down at your phone or looking at something else um or you know talking with a friend and not really taking in your surroundings so it's really allowing yourself to be open to these signs and then you know interpreting them and having that connection you know as i'm learning myself about you know energy healing and you know practicing different techniques in terms of opening up chakras and just being more attuned with my my own healing journey. I um, was pouring coffee this morning and you know how sometimes like when you pour the coffee, they make designs like in your cup. Yes. And so I <laughs> you always, got a heart. I got a heart. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I knew it before. How did you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. That's exactly what happened. And I'm thinking, okay, today is like going to be a day where I'm going to make connections. I'm going to move forward with compassion and empathy and love. And, you know, it's just one of those little things where I could have just poured the coffee, drank the cup, et cetera. But really taking that moment to pause and be present, as you were mentioning. Yeah. And and isn't that really, um, I think this whole journey, if it's one thing I so believe um, is coming, it's like a coming to a place of self-love and self-compassion that has really nothing to do with anything else. Absolutely. And I think that is, um, you know, I know in some cultures, uh, that is spoken of, people have seen a dead body. I I think here in North America, we make it so clinical, maybe other than the indigenous uh, peoples of um, North America, that most people go through life and may have never had that experience. True. And and to be able to sit with someone 
as I was fortunate to sit with my dad for four days and and be like his death doula really is yeah. what it is. And and to uh, be aware, I found that because I had that opportunity, the grieving was a total different process. Tell me about that. How would you describe its differences? I have no unfinished business. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, whatever I needed to say to him, just to be with him. Um, so I think that is the biggest gift. Yeah. Is is not having any unfinished business with the uh, person. Yeah, that's beautiful. I was yeah. speaking with um, another dear friend who was on the podcast and she lost her husband to a terminal illness and she described those last days as probably one of the most intimate moments of their relationship and how beautiful that was to be able to experience, you know, being with your loved one as they're passing, actively passing. Yes, uh, absolutely. And um, you talk about earlier the hand-to-heart connection. So the volunteer at hospice taught me it's like you rest their hand, right? Mm -hmm. So their hand is, so it's their heart. So it's left to left. Okay. And and you you form, it's that infinity symbol, right? Mm. When you do that, you form that infinite heart connection. Okay. And and you just um, hold it as long as you so choose. And so the moment she taught us that, um, you know, whether it was myself or my son or my partner sitting with my dad, we tried to do it as much as we could. Um at different times during those four days. And and I think, um, you know, it was a very peaceful process for him. It wasn't agitated. It wasn't, um, you know, any major um, gasping or gnashing of teeth or anything mm-hmm. like that. It was, it, it was just such a beautiful, and, and it's almost because I was there, with him for those four days, 24 hours in his room, that you go through those moments where you can see um, the process. So you know that hearing is most probably one of the last things to go. So you always want to whisper and let them know it's okay. My dad was Hindu, so he practiced Hinduism. And we had his last rites the Monday before he transitioned. And it's almost as though everything in the universe has a specific rhythm or um, a divine matrix, call it, you know, again, whatever you will, because we had that for him the, the Monday and he transitioned you know, exactly three days later. And it was like halfway between the time, like we did his last rides from 6.30 to 7. And he transitioned 6.45, three days later. And and there were things like a robin sitting on the roof um, across the laneway that I could see from his room. And, you know, my dad, though, interesting enough, 
this year will be 40 years since my mom has transitioned. My parents would come up to Trinidad, from Trinidad to Canada um, almost every year uh, because all my siblings are scattered over North America. My mom, 40 years ago, said, no, she wasn't coming. Hmm. And my dad was in the Rockies. My brother lives in, one of my brothers live in Calgary. And he was only there for like three days and had to turn around uh, to come back to Trinidad to attend her funeral. Oh, wow. And do you know, two years ago, after we celebrated his 94th birthday, my partner and I, we were in the Rockies on vacation when he fell ill. We returned halfway from our trip. Where was I? <laughs> so is this something that was meant to be? It, it's such a bigger question. I have no doubt in my mind um, that my mom was there to greet him and help mm-hmm. him along his path. And so how has this um, healing that we're describing and talking about today and the work that you're doing with Wellsprings in terms of the courses that you're taking, how has that helped you with your own personal journey with breast cancer? I feel like I'm truly living my best life every single day. I love that. And yeah, and and to be, um, but it's not, when I say my best life, Every single day, it's a sense of contentment. It's a sense of being comfortable with me. It's a sense of relieving expectations of myself and anyone else. I'm so glad you defined that because, you know, sometimes, and I don't know how active you are on social media, but I would say on social media, we see a lot of these doctored photos, everyone forcing the smile, everyone pretending that life is perfect and that they're living their best life and they have the vacations. And, you know, you see on social media the what they want to choose to present versus what I hear you describing is, I would say, attuned to understanding what it means to be at peace with yourself. If I can just share with everybody on this journey, um, to sit in the silence and, and really discern, because we all have that ability to discern, is this something, whether it's a decision around uh, surgery or diet or medication um, to the other extreme, which could be, um, you know, hands-on healing. <laughs> exactly. Um I think both spectrums play such a uh, an important role in our lives. So it's not separate from, and it's not one path only, um, but it's really recognizing the whole person and, and really looking at ourselves um, on all levels. So physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, but also looking at it from a full life wheel. Yes. Right? Because like you and I were talking about, um, we are so busy. You asked me to tell you a little bit about myself, you know, being a full-time professional, having 
kids and now having grandkids and going through a separation and a divorce and uh, that whole journey by itself requires a total introspection because it also has beliefs and limiting beliefs, right? Because somewhere along the line, depending on our religion, we may have a belief that um, we only have one partner. <laughs> and, and that may not necessarily be our belief. You tell in your story how you decided no longer to take letrozole, one of the aromatase inhibitors, because of one, all of the terrible side effects. Yeah. So I think for me, as as I go into my silence and my meditation on a daily basis, if something, so because the breast cancer tumor was grade two, uh, grade one, sorry, but stage two. So the difference is stage is based on size, but grade is based on the uh, percentage of abnormal cells within the tumor. So grade one tumor in my case specifically was less than 10%. So and lobular breast cancer tend to be um, slow growing. And I had gone through I'm very, very fortunate with my medical team and a fantastic surgeon who requested all the tests to ascertain prior to surgery or presenting a choice around surgery to me as to was this anywhere else in my body. So, um, So knowing that and being an active participant and reading and researching. Once the lumpectomy occurred and I got the pathology of the lumpectomy that indicated it was stage two, grade one, and then estrogen, progesterone, 90 to 100% driven. Um, But going back for my CT scan, I observed that um, there was indications of a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, um, and then my doctor had huge, um, if you want to say, series of blood work (laughs) around the progression or non-progression of a non-alcoholic fatty liver. And and so knowing what I can do to address that, because I think for me, that's my root cause of why this imbalance occurred, that combined with stress, I think, um, are most probably two of the main factors. So not eating healthy, not exercising, um, uh, being postmenopausal, we have to take care of ourselves in a total different way than when we produce enough um, estrogen. But but the thing with estrogen and being postmenopausal, which is something that I learned as well, is that it doesn't mean that we're not producing estrogen. It means that in my case, which is why I think the stress, because the adrenals produce cortisol that gets converted to estrogen. If I don't address the non-alcoholic fatty liver, um, which takes about three years, thankful and grateful that it's the one organ, if you take care of it, can rejuvenate. 
And having the test done that indicate there isn't um, any uh, probability of it progressing to be cirrhosis of the liver or anything like that, I've chosen to change the way I eat, eat more vegetables, um, do intermittent fasting. So I have, you know, maybe 80% of my plate is vegetables and 20% protein. And just exercise and just even walking, being more active. Um, And that combined with the fact that my medical oncologist did the oncotype test on the tumor. So as you most probably aware, the only time they can do an oncotype test is post, um, whether it's biopsy or uh, surgery in this case, a lumpectomy, um, where they can look at the tumor and give some indicators as to what's the probability of recurrence. So again, in my case, understanding the uncore scores, it's called, um, mine was just 11, which meant for them to even consider recommending chemo based on age, I would have had to have a score of over 26. So you were really so, low on the oncotype. Yeah, so 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 that was one. The oncotype, uh, the onco score also gives an indicator because there's another part of it that shows if you went on the aromatase inhibitor for five years, how does that affect your longevity or non-recurrence of breast cancer? Mm-hmm. And again, in my case, it was taking me from the average of, I think it's now one in eight, I believe, um, of women can get breast cancer Mm -hmm. to one in 33. Everybody's so unique. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And so my body, I listened to my body. My body was saying, just after two months of taking this little tiny, tiny pill, it's like, if it fell on the floor, you can't even find it, right? <laughs> I'm on Letrozole too, so I completely understand. <laughs> what? Wow. Yes. Yeah, so I had all three side effects. I went through menopause, Laura, without any night sweat, hot flashes, mm. none of those things. And something triggered in my body with Letrozole that I have night sweats, I have hot flashes. The worst though was the joint pain in my hands. Yep. To the point where I would get up the wee hours of the morning and I can't go to sleep because if I lie down, it's worse. So I would try to move and slowly it would ease, but it just felt, I don't know, like I imagine how an arthritic set of fingers feel, right? Mm-hmm. And and so after the first month, I thought, okay, Gloria, try it for a month. I called my medical oncologist, being the wonderful person that he is, suggested instead of taking it at night, let's try it in the morning. Which is so, so funny because I hear a lot of women say, I take it at night so I can sleep through the symptoms. But in your case, it was waking you up. It was that bad. It was waking me up in my REM sleep from two mm-hmm. to seven. Yeah. 
right? That's the time when I need my baby sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I need to rest like a baby, right? So maybe taking it in the morning when you're active and walking and moving would mitigate some of the symptoms. It did not. It was like clockwork, uh, Laura. The second month was the same thing. Mm -hmm. So then he said, why don't we just stop after two months, see when the side effects are gone, and then we would try the next uh, aromatase inhibitor. In my case, he suggested examistine Mm -hmm. because letrozole and anastrozole are built the same way. So try examistine. Well, I'm still having night sweats and hot flashes. Yeah. And I um I've made enough changes that I walk a path of well-being and I know that where my head and my heart are connected with such intense passion on it mm-hmm. that I know I'm healthy. So you chose to forego the aromatase inhibitors. You are trusting your intuition and your your body. And like you were saying and how we discussed for this podcast, you know, all of the amazing changes that you've made with exercise and diet and then just being attuned to healing and Reiki and the therapeutic touch. So you, it's beautiful. I'm so excited for you. And you know, I feel like this is one of many conversations. I feel like we're just scratching the surface on a number of topics that I would love to invite you back for future conversation. And then absolutely. Thank you. And then I want to ask in terms of closing words and remarks, is there anything that you would like to highlight for our listeners? Any words of encouragement or advice to those listening? Absolutely. I I think what I would suggest to all of us is to be an active participant in our well-being. The second is do our research, be informed. And and third is trust that instinct, gut instinct, internal guidance, whether we do that through prayer, through meditation, through walking in nature, I think they all have the same effect and, and know that healing is possible. We all have all the tools, including allopathic medicine, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but that combined with a holistic approach to heal ourselves. I do believe we are multidimensional beings of light. we just energy. And as we walk that path of really understanding who we are, um, it's looking at the whole person. And, and for me, um, to be able to go and grieve losses that occurred, you know, 40-something years ago, <laughs> right? Um, it's just, uh, yes, and, and, and it just tells you um, where these things can reside in our beingness that we haven't, you know, uncovered <laughs> through our own work, through our own introspection to look at ourselves. And and it's a choice because we can choose differently. We can pretend that it's not part of who we are or we can say, 
um, no, this is something that is really important. Get into that place of self-love and self-compassion. Because I really do believe once we are able to truly get to that place, that we are then being the best that we can be in the moment. I love that. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you for taking the time to share your story with us and being a guest on our podcast. And I can see we've been smiling for the last hour. (laughs) Yes, which is awesome. Well, my pleasure, my honor. Truly, if there's anything I can do to help anyone else, I'm an open, open book willing to share. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gloria. And thank you all for listening and tuning in week after week here on Breast Cancer Conversations. Please be mindful that all of our content and information is for educational purposes only and is never a substitute for medical advice. If you want to hang out again, please check out survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events where you can RSVP to our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, our Movement Monday classes, workshops, seminars, and so much more. We can also continue the dialogue online via social media. Our Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and you can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG. Until next time, keep on thriving.